Let me just say first that um, I thank all of you for being here. Uh, nobody appreciates the preciousness of Saturdays like I do. Because Saturday literally is the only day I can say to my family, this whole day is yours. And uh, so you gave up your Saturday, or at least half of it, and I have. And I, I really want to thank you for that. And I appreciate it. I am um, uh, going to go over quickly again. In case you missed the first few minutes, tomorrow we will announce to the church that we will be turning in December and January uh, into a uh, 2-1 schedule. We'll have to do with some of the Bible classes some, some rearranging, but we will focus on a 2-1 schedule. It's going to be crowded. Uh, it's going to be fun, but it's going to be crowded. But that's good because we need to be reminded again why staying in two assemblies simply isn't consistent with our mission of reaching more people. We've got to find a way to get past the we can only meet on two assemblies on Sunday morning, a barrier that has hampered this church now for too long. So in February, we will start a third service, and it will be on Saturday, and it will be instrumental. Nobody will be forced to go there. Sunday morning will remain a cappella. The summit will remain a cappella. Um, we're not going to say... Uh, what the future looks like, we're just going to tell you that's what's going to happen in February. And uh, no one's going to be forced to go anywhere they don't want to go, worship any way they don't want to worship, okay? But we're going to be both and. And we're going to, for the first time in years, have three services where people just choose the one you like. No one's going to be nip- manipulated or forced to go to where they don't want to be. You're just going to get to choose. And I think it's going to bless this church immensely. I'm going to teach the whole church the material you're hearing on Sunday mornings, the 3rd, the 10th, and the 17th in combined adult Bible classes. So uh, you'll have a chance to hear this again if you want. Or, you know what some of you might want to do is go and, and uh, for three weeks maybe teach in the children's program and let the children's teachers get to come and hear this material. Uh, but, I, but you not want to hear it again. It's to be your call. We're going to put the teaching on the website. On the 10th and the 17th, on Sunday afternoon, I'm going to meet uh, somewhere in the building, probably the chapel or room 109 with some of the elders. And if you want to come by and talk with us and visit about this, uh, feel free to come. I would a whole lot rather you talk to us than talk about us. (laughs) I do think the Bible has spoken clearly about that. And so I would encourage all of us to to remember that word. And uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but that's what it looks like. We'll start the service, we hope, in February. Um, I will tell you this, uh, if you're looking forward to that service, it'll probably begin uh, smaller than it will become in the sense that uh, we don't know how long it will take to uh, have uh, an instrumental band of the quality we want to have. We may have to start small and let it grow. Uh, I think there are probably incredible numbers of gifted musicians in this church we just don't know about. And it'll be interesting to see them uh, rise up to the front. But we do want to do a cappella and instrumental praise with excellence where people are brought into the presence of God. Um, I think it'll probably take us a while to hit our stride in the instrumental service. You know, people think, well, boy, we're finally going to have instrumental music. Then I'll finally have the music I like the most. Do you know how many kinds of instrumental music they are? You don't fix the worship wars just because you have instrumental music. I mean, 
there's all kinds of instrumental music to enjoy and it'll probably take us a while to figure out which kind best reaches our culture so we're all going to have to continue to be patient but I think this is going to be a move that blesses us Uh, I think the elders would agree that we feel like God has been with us in this journey and will continue to be um I wasn't planning to do this, but I'm going to take a few minutes and just talk a little bit about Saturday night. Uh, I was going to do that later in the teaching to the whole church, and I just woke up last night and just, I just felt impressed. Maybe I should talk about that for a little bit. So I'm a little bit off the cuff here, and this makes me nervous. <laughs> but um, Saturday, let's talk a little bit about a service on Saturday. Why Saturday evening? New York Times says 5 o'clock Saturday is the most free hour of the week for Americans. Uh, Churches across the country have shown it's a very effective time to hold services, especially in communities that have a large population of people with a Catholic background. Um, They're finding it much easier to get unchurched friends to visit on a Saturday evening than on a Sunday morning. Um, By... uh, Doing so, we hope it can become a very evangelistic service. Uh, Of course, I was hoping that we could do that with a Sunday evening service, but the feedback we've gotten from a lot of our families is, especially with school-age children, Saturday would just be easier for us than Sunday afternoon. So we're going to go to Saturday. Now, is Saturday worship biblical? Um, Open your Bibles to Acts 2. Did you know there's no command in the New Testament to meet on the first day of the week? There's examples. There's no command. But what we do know about the early Christians, it says uh, in Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, as verse 42, to the fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. Uh, and everybody was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They're selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes. And ate together with glad and sincere hearts. The practice of the early Christians was to meet every day of the week. Uh, since the Jewish day began at dusk. if And the early churches, by the way, met in the evening. You know, we don't have a biblical example of any church meeting in the morning. They met in the evenings. Uh, They would meet if they were on a Jewish time schedule on what we would call Saturday night because in the Jewish schedule, the sundown is when the day began. If they didn't, then they would meet on what we call Sunday night but on what they would have called uh, Monday morning. Uh, The principle to remember here is that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Paul says in Romans 14, 5, one man considers one day more sacred than the other. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Uh, Frankly, if we're a disciple, every day belongs to the Lord, right? I don't really think, though, that any of us have a problem with, well, can you worship God on Saturday? We can worship God every day. Uh, I think for a lot of us, the real issue is, yeah, but can you take communion on Saturday? is, Is Sunday the only day you can take communion? Well, again, what does it say in Acts 2, 46? The early Christians took communion every day. They broke bread every day. They met in their homes. Uh, You know that the practice of communion in the early churches was very different than what we do. If they visited our service today, they would recognize the praise. They'd probably recognize the teaching of the word and the prayers they would certainly recognize. Probably when we observe communion, they would say, what's that? 
they met around a table and had a meal together. And somewhere during the course of that meal, a, a teacher or an elder or a pastor would stand and say, let's take a moment now and let's remember the Lord's sacrifice for us. And they would take some of the wine and some of the bread on the table. And they would do that. And they did that according to Acts 2. They did it every day together. Now, church history is enlightening here because it's very clear in church history that the early Christians shared communion uh, all through the week. There was no set time only to share communion. Uh, as late as the 4th century, Chrysostom, the great Christian preacher, says our people meet for the daily sacrifice of the Lord's Supper. Augustine talks about that. Cyprian and others talk about the different... And, and the point was there was a great diversity in the early church of how often they took the Lord's Supper. The interesting thing... In all of that literature, there's never one single word of condemnation of any church anywhere for the way they decided to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, um, those of us raised in the Church of Christ know Acts 20, verse 7 very well, so let's turn over there for just a second. Verse 7, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And Paul spoke to the people and became, this is yeah, Acts 20, verse 7. Paul spoke to the people and became, because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. Now, there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. <laughs> See, I, I think Luke had a kind of a bad attitude. <laughs> Now, now, when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. And then they went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. And the people took the young man home. They were greatly comforted. Okay. Um, that's typically the... Now, first off, just remember, this is an example of what one church did. It's not a command. It's an example of the church in Troas meeting on the first day of the week. Now, it's worth asking, what day was that day? Well, um, most likely that was Sunday. I'm sure this was Roman time, not Jewish time. Troas was a Roman colony. Uh, in fact, it was the second Roman capital of Asia. It was so much a Roman colony, they were considered part of, you, of Italy and didn't have to pay tax. Uh, Luke was a Gentile. He was writing Theophilus, a Roman official. Uh, this is probably, no doubt, Roman time. They met on Sunday. Paul preached till midnight. Uh, the boy fell out. Paul brought him back to life. They went upstairs. They broke bread. It was after midnight. What day was it when they broke bread? It was Monday when they broke bread. The preeminent passage we've used for years to say you can only have communion on Sunday was a church that had communion on Monday. Now, they probably did typically have it on Sunday, but I'm just saying, apparently nobody said, well, we can't have communion because it's not Sunday anymore. Apparently that wasn't the issue. I don't want to belittle it. I'm just saying, folks, it's sad to me we have taken the day and made it the issue instead of the event. Um, the early church, whenever they gathered, would remember the Lord in, in this beautiful meal. Now, there's only one command in the whole New Testament on frequency, okay? One command, and it came from Jesus, and what Jesus says trumps any example, right? And what Jesus said is, as oft as you do it. 
That's the command on frequency. It's the Greek uh, adverb hesokos, um, which means a, uh, a pattern of, of irregular frequency. It's only, this word is only used one other time in the Bible. It's in Revelation 11, verse 6. And I find that kind of interesting. Let me just read that verse to you. Revelation 11, verse 6. Talking about the two faithful witnesses. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. They have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. And here's the word. As often as they want. That's the word. Jesus said, as often as you wish, or as often as you take it, do it in remembrance of me. So, the New Testament teaching on communion isn't one day and one day only. The New Testament is whenever you do it, do it for the right reason. So, can you have communion on Saturday? Yes. We're very committed here to weekly communion. In a Saturday service or a Sunday service, we'll always take time to celebrate the sacrifice of the Lord. Um, so, there are probably more thoughts on that I need to develop. And if you have questions, feel free to ask me. But um, we will have a Saturday service and a Sunday service in which we will teach the Word. We will sing praise to God. We will share communion together. Uh, by the way, I don't know of a preacher in the world that has a problem with taking up an offering any day of the week. <laughs> all right, let's all stand up and sing one more song. Father, we love you, we worship and adore you. Glorify your name in all the earth. Glorify your name. Glorify your Father, we do love you. And although we may have our preferences and even our different understandings and our different interpretations, we're all agreed on this. Your name is to be praised in all the earth. We pray, God, that you will never let the passion for that mission diminish in this church. May that commitment to that mission trump every other preference and every other uh, like or dislike among us. 
Because we can all agree on this. The whole world needs Jesus. Help us to be that church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, and before you sit down, say to your neighbor, you know, I don't know if I agree with him, but he looks cute in that shirt. (laughs) All right. The... uh, The purpose of this session is to deal with the second question. The first question of the morning was, is instrumental praise acceptable to God? Um, Well, you know what I believe. I I don't believe there's any way that you can use your Bible to say it's not. Um, That's not to mean you should give up your preference for a cappella praise. Absolutely not. It's not my purpose to convince anyone to give up their preference for a cappella praise. We're simply asking the question, does the Bible support the position that instrumental praise is acceptable to God? Yes, it does. The second question, though, is does that mean that instrumental praise is the right thing for Rich and Hills to do? That's a missional question. It's not a biblical question. It's a missional question. And you know what? That's a harder question. Because at that point, some subjectivity has to enter the picture. Because what one of you thinks is the most missional or culturally appropriate thing to do might not be what another thinks. Even though you're both committed to the same mission, you both have the same goal, you may not agree on how to get there. And so what I'm going to try to do in this session is is suggest why I believe being a both-and church is the most fruitful way for us to accomplish our mission. Let me show you a picture. You all recognize the man on the left, President Bush. And that's the Saudi crown prince. That picture was taken last year in Crawford, Texas uh, at his ranch. And you'll notice uh, something rather unusual that you don't typically see two men do on ranches in Texas. (laughs) You'll notice the president is holding the hand of the crown prince. Now, why would he do that? Because you know, if you know Saudi culture, that in Saudi culture, it's a sign of respect and honor for men who walk together, especially men of stature, to hold hands. And so the president, in order to build a cultural bridge to someone he wanted to reach and connect with, made a cultural concession And I think he was wise to do that. I think every missionary understands that picture. Okay. I think that picture is a modern illustration of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Though I am free and belonging to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all men. So that by all possible means, I might save some. 
I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. We understand that principle. The New Living Translation puts it this way. I try to find common ground with everyone so that I might bring them to Christ. Same verse from the Good News Translation. So I become all things to all people that I might save some of them by any means possible. Now, what our church needs to understand is that we live in a mission field. And we need to think like missionaries. In fact, I would contend that right now the Western world is the most difficult mission field on earth. We do not live in a Christian culture. Please understand that. We do not live in a Christian city. Okay? Last weekend, only 21% of this city went to a house of worship. That includes every religion under the sun besides Christian religion. Only 21% went to worship anywhere. Do you know what's really scary? For those under 25, the figure's about 9%. We don't live in a Christian culture. We haven't for a long time. We've got to think like missionaries. As missionaries, we've got to seek to engage our culture without being seduced by it. In other words, the gospel never changes, but the packaging must. And if we're going to reach this generation, we're going to have to think strategically and missionally about the role of music. Now, every church must ask these kinds of questions in their own particular context. And that's why we can only glean from other faith communities in other places and other times principles, not patterns. Does that make sense? Another faith community in another culture in another time, we can glean principles of how they reach their culture. But a principle is not a pattern. Now, I say that because I want to address right now a very legitimate question, and that is why did the early church not worship with instrumental music? Okay, and let me give you several thoughts there. First, we have to admit we don't know the worship practices of all the earliest churches. What we know about are those in what we would call the civilized world. We don't know what the worship practices were as the gospel spread to India or to southern Africa. We mainly know about the churches in Asia Minor and and, uh, southern Europe because that's where we have the written literature. But we admit, at least in those churches... Uh, Worship, it seems, was for the most part a cappella, if not in many cases exclusively a cappella. Why? Again, you can read research here till you get tired, head, and you will not find consensus. Here are the four main reasons you'll hear. Some think they worshiped without instruments because they often gathered in secret to avoid persecution. Um, that's possible there are places in the world today that meet to worship and they don't sing so they don't draw attention to themselves. That's possible. I think more likely you have to understand in that culture in southern Europe and Asia Minor, instrumental music in the ancient world was associated with pagan rituals that promoted hedonism and debauchery. If you went to any of the guilds 
and any of their celebrations, there would have been great debauchery, much drunkenness, much immorality, and there would always have been a band. And so you find a lot of the church fathers really condemning that kind of display and encouraging the Christians to stay away from it. So some think they didn't worship that way so they could make a clear distinction from the sin of their culture. Still others think the early Christian worship would have naturally modeled itself after Jewish synagogue worship, which was a cappella. Most likely, they think, because many rabbis determined playing instruments involving plucking would deny or would violate Sabbath prohibitions against work. Now, remember, the synagogue, beautiful as it was, and Jesus endorsed the synagogue, was never authorized in Scripture. It grew out of the exile, but it was, uh, it was in fact, I think, a tremendous influence on the assemblies of the early Christians, and that could have been a factor. And then it is also possible... And many think this, that in accordance with the precedent of Psalm 137, the early Christians might have joined with Jewish leaders in banning all instrumental praise after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Do you remember the Psalm 137? We, sunk, we took our harps and we hung them on trees. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? When the people were taken into exile, they ceased the worship that they associated with the temple. When the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, the Jewish leaders banned all, not just instrumental, for a time they banned even vocal praise of God. They said, how can we sing praise when the temple is destroyed? And most Orthodox Jewish communities today still observe that and don't worship with instruments. So all of those, all of those could have been factors. It could have been that one factor was a bigger factor in one place than the other. Here's the point. In their culture, for reasons already noted, it was the culturally appropriate and missionally strategic thing to do, not to worship with instruments. Now, what's important to remember is that while they may not have used instrumental music, no church father condemned its use until the third century. In fact, in the second century, you have Clement of Alexandria talking about uh, social gatherings, saying, even if you wish to sing and make melody to the kithara or lyre, there's no blame. You shall imitate the righteous Hebrew king in his thanksgiving to God. There's nothing in the church fathers for the first several centuries that condemns instrumental music. Now, church history is a guide. It's not our authority. You know, for centuries, the early church met only in homes. They sang only in unison. You could argue, yes, instrumental music is not necessary. Neither are church buildings. Neither is four-part harmony. Our task is not to duplicate the earliest churches. Our task is to imitate their goal of being culturally relevant outposts for the kingdom as we stay faithful to Scripture. And that's why the church, in its genius, by God's design, can look different all over the world and still be the church, worshiping the same God, honoring the same Bible, preaching the same gospel. And so the question for us is, as we stay under the Word of God, what is the best way for us at this time in this place 
as a missionary people to reach our culture. I believe that needs to include, remember Paul said, by all means possible. That one of those means needs to include teaching this culture the gospel in a cappella and instrumental praise. You see, there's two reasons I want to talk about. The first is the mission of reaching the lost. Now, let's just admit, we make many cultural concessions to our neighbors, and we don't think we've watered down the gospel when we make them. For example, think about the length of our services. A worship service here is typically an hour to 10 to 15 minutes. Now, if you go to church in Africa, they haven't even started worshiping in an hour and 10 minutes. For that matter, if you go to many black congregations here in America, they wouldn't even call that church. They'd call that warm-up. Why do we only worship for an hour? We've already got a picture there in Acts 27. They worship for four or five hours. Why would we just worship for an hour and 50 minutes? It's a cultural decision. Most of us know if we were going to get our neighbors to visit church, that hour to hour and 15 minutes about what they can do. We've made a cultural concession. Why in most churches, not just ours, but most churches, why has dress become less formal in the last 20 years? Well, the fact of the matter is nobody in this room wants to invite an unchurched friend to come Sunday and say, oh, by the way, put on a suit. That's why we've changed. Why do we read versions besides the King James Version most of us were raised on? Can you not learn the gospel in the King James? Of course you can. But if you weren't raised on the King James, it certainly is a culturally wise thing to do. To read the scripture in a language that builds a better bridge. Why do we use media and technology in our services now? Now, did any of these things water down the gospel? Of course not. This is not compromise. This is the very imitation of God. Realize that God is the ultimate contextualizer. God is above all culture. But he chooses to work within it. How else could we ever receive his revelation? See, God's truth is supra-cultural. But men can't access his truth outside of their cultural context. None of us can. You can't, I can't, nobody can. His truth must be clothed in time-specific cultural forms. Now, the ultimate expression of this was the arrival of Jesus as the Word become flesh. The incarnation calls on us to identify with lost people in all ways possible. And in this culture, that means missional music. Our music must be a tool to connect to the lost. Whatever kind of music we use. Lyle Schaller, who's probably the best known church consultant in America, studied uh, the 50 uh, growingest churches. I mean, churches actually reaching lost people in America. Here's what he wrote. Music is the first and last and most powerful impression people take from a church. 
Music either makes or breaks the preaching. Now, you may not like that statement. And for some of us, that statement makes no sense because we were raised in churches. But most of us have got to remember to put on the lens of the outsider, the lost person. And here's what's going to be hard for us to understand. The generation that we're losing, the nine Oh, no, the 91% that don't go to church. Unlike previous generations, do not view music as entertainment. Now, that's actually been true about since the 60s, when all you ex-hippies out there changed America. (laughs) You see, my parents grew up in a generation, and they were a great generation. My parents grew up in the Depression uh, my parents uh, remember World War II. We do, I remember the movies. They remember the war. Great generation. But music was and still is, for my parents, entertainment. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me. It was a wonderful way to relax. But something happened in the 60s. In the 70s, we found out our leaders lie. Presidents, not one but two in my lifetime, have looked straight into the TV screen and just lied. And a generation decided we don't trust the people on TV anymore. Do you know who told the truth? John Lennon told the truth. Bob Dylan told the truth. What happened was a generation turned to the artist to get their worldview. They still do. Now, that's why this question is so hard. For people who were above my generation, when we talk about music, church isn't in the entertainment business. Well, no, it's not. Church is in the truth business. What you've got to understand is that in this generation, their worldview and their truth is received through music. It's very, very important. You may not like this. You may not wish it was that way. But we're thinking like missionaries. We've got to know our culture whether we like it or not. And in a postmodern world, truth is discovered through experience. The postmodern mind asks one question. Did your music lead me to God? Did I meet God in your music? And how many in this generation we need to reach are listening to a cappella music in their cars? For that matter, how many of you are? Now, I know here No matter how hard I say this, I'm going to be misinterpreted. And some are going to say that I'm teaching that instrumental music is the end all of reaching the lost. No, I'm not. There are a thousand churches around here with bands that are dying. I'm not saying if you have instrumental music, you've fixed all the problems and you've reached the lost. But is our fellowship courageous enough to face the possibility, and I would say, the probability that our music preference 
has become a barrier to reaching the lost. I know this is hard to hear. I don't get joy in sharing the news. But you need to hear this. Churches of Christ are in trouble. We've been in decline now for a generation. Not for a year or two, for a generation. In the last three years in Texas, where we're stronger than any other state, we've lost 8,000 members. We've been in decline now for years. At the same time, Christian churches, our brothers and sisters in the Restoration Movement, who basically are the Church of Christ with bands, have grown by 18%. They're the fastest growing Christian group in America, and we're in decline. Serious decline. I saw recently a book that says if we stay in the decline we're on, we will not exist by the year 2042. If we keep losing members at the rate we're losing them. Randy Harris at ACU says, if we would just keep half of our children, we would grow. Now, we're not growing. What does that tell you? And I'm going to be accused of a lot of things. But one thing you don't accuse me of is not loving this fellowship. Now, I know it's just a small part of the kingdom of God. But I will tell you, I can't believe that God is honored by the decline and ultimate irrelevance of this movement. I can't. A movement that produced artists like Amy Grant and Max Licato, a movement that produced pioneer missionaries like Dan Coker and Elder Deckles, a movement that produced people like you. I cannot believe it honors God to see that movement just disappear into obsolescence. I can't. I think we have a lot to offer the kingdom of God. But we have to face hard questions. And what I'm, I get passionate because I see so many people who want to just put their head in the sand and say, well, let's just not talk about it because it, it troubles me to talk about it. I feel sometimes like a doctor and the patient has been diagnosed with a deadly cancer. And I know that if we don't do something, the patient is going to die. And the patient says, I don't want to hear the news. Can we talk about this in five or six years? Maybe then I'll be ready to talk about it. I will be, if I have been, accused of having this agenda. Well, you just want to build some big mega church because you're proud. You know, people can, uh, what can you do if people attack your character? First place, I, I don't apologize for wanting as many lost people to get saved at Richmond Hills as possibly can be saved. I don't apologize for that. Now, if they stay at this church or if they go to another church, that's okay with me. But I, do, I will never, ever apologize for wanting this church to be faithful to the mission to make disciples. Ever. But the patient has got to realize it can't stay like it is. I was in Oklahoma Christian University a couple weeks ago, spoke in chapel, spoke there to the editor of the Christian Chronicle, the largest paper in our fellowship. The whole next year's issues are going to be devoted to why is our movement in such decline. Now, I told him, we're not going to agree on the prescription. (laughs) But I'm thankful you're doing this because at least maybe finally we can agree on the diagnosis. Things can't stay like they are. Now, here's part of our problem. 
our music seems completely normal, even beautiful to us, because we were raised with it. And that's why it's so hard to understand how weird it seems to outsiders. And I'm sorry, I know that word seems offensive. I don't mean it to be. But we've got to be honest. When our culture thinks music, it assumes instrumental music. And this culture gets true through experience. And so if instrumental music is acceptable to God, if it's a powerful and culturally relevant way to build a bridge to the lost, and if we're missionaries, why wouldn't we take advantage of such a potentially fruitful tool? Now, this is what many of our young church leaders and planters are thinking And it's why many are choosing to abandon this heritage. Recently, one of our colleges had a church planting workshop filled with incredibly gifted young men and women that want to go plant churches. And the teacher made a passionate plea to remain in churches of Christ. And no one committed to do it. Nobody. Not because they don't love the fellowship, but because if they're going to go out there and, and if their very survival depends on building a church that reaches lost people... They're not going to commit to a fellowship that says, but you can't use all means possible to reach lost people. You can only use some. It's why every week I'm getting another phone call from another young preacher saying, I think I'm going to leave. And I want to say, why? And if the answer is because I want to be able to use instrumental praise to reach lost people, I want to say, well, who says you can't be a church of Christ and have instrumental praise? Who made that rule? I thought we were an autonomous fellowship. I thought we didn't have presidents. Who passed that law? I want us to think about this for the mission of reaching the lost. And I want us to think about it for the mission of keeping our kids. Um, On several occasions at large brotherhood gatherings, I've asked my audience, how many of you have children that no longer attend churches of Christ? And the response is staggering. It gets as quiet as this room is. Now again, hear me say, the kingdom of God is bigger than the church of Christ. And if God thinks the church of Christ has served its time, that's God's call. I still believe there's great hope for a revival in this movement. I'd like to be a part of it. But we have to ask the question, why is the church we've given our lives to, the church our kids aren't staying with? Um, This, again, is subjective. I want to share with you quickly, though, a friend of mine went to Fuller Theological Seminary. His doctoral dissertation was on why... Uh, people leave churches of Christ. Now, you need to know something about his survey instrument. Um, He did a study of about the last 20 years of the last century. Here's the thing. In Southern California, where he preaches, the population grew by 33%, okay? Conservative evangelical churches in Southern California exploded in growth. People were being unsettled. Their lives were unstable. They've moved to a new place. And basically, if you open the doors and preach the Bible, your church grew. 
population in that 17-year time grew by 33%. Churches of Christ declined by 6%. So he did his survey instrument. He contacted churches. He got the names of 500 and something people who left. He sent them the survey instrument. Why did you leave? Now, you need to know something about the people that replied. It's very important. Two-thirds of them had parents who attended the Church of Christ. So we're talking about our kids. 85% of them attended more than once a week. 7% at least once. So 92% of these people we would call active members. Um, Of those who attended college, 40% attended a church-related school. 99% had a high school degree. 60% had a bachelor's degree. We're talking highly educated, very committed Christian people, most of whom have parents that attend the Church of Christ. These are your core. Now, I wish I could uh, put it all on a screen, but these are the top 15 reasons he found why people are leaving Churches of Christ. Let's put those up there. Number one, drawn to a church with a more heartfelt, expressive worship style. Number two, worship services were uninspiring. Number three, they found another church they liked better. Number four, church was too legalistic. Number five, drawn to a church more effective in outreach and evangelism. Number six, leadership was unwilling to change on too many issues. Seven, conflict over doctrinal issues. Eight, conflict over worship issues. Nine, church programs didn't meet my personal family needs. Ten, wanted more freedom in worship. Eleven, drawn to a church with an instrumental style of worship. Twelve, preaching didn't relate to life. Thirteen, wanted women to have more public leadership role. Wanted a church that was more gender inclusive. And finally, the spouse or child just wanted to attend somewhere else. Okay, here was his conclusions. The most obvious are the reasons relating to a desire for a more heartfelt worship experience. Of the reasons given, seven of the 15 clearly related specifically to a dissatisfaction with the worship experience. Then he went on to argue that he thinks it's more than that. He mentioned three more reasons. The found the church I like better. He said what they're really saying is I found a place that worships in a way that meets my soul better. Uh, Four, church was too legalistic. What they were really saying was, our worship forms are too rigid, and we won't change. Uh, Six, leadership unwilling to change on too many issues. Again, he said that basically was a worship-related matter. I would argue two more reasons. I think number five, when they say they're drawn to a church more effective in outreach and evangelism, what many of them are saying is, I'd rather take my friend to a church where they understand better what we're doing to my church. And in verse uh, number nine... Church programs didn't meet my family and personal needs. Um, Again, I suspect worship preference had a lot to do with that. Um, He went on to write in his dissertation, uh, based upon frequent exhaustive written survey comments, former members wholly rejected two key doctrinal viewpoints characteristic of more traditional churches of Christ. First, respondents utterly repudiated the legalistic view that doing church right is the way to salvation. Second, Respondents repeatedly disavowed the sectarian mindset that we're the only church going to heaven. Also, of the specific doctrinal disagreements which switchers expressed, none was more prevalent than their disavowal of traditional, uh, excuse me, none was more prevalent than their disavowal of the traditional Church of Christ position against instrumental music. Now, the good news is, 
over 90% of the people who left wound up in other churches. And the really good news is, of that 90%, only 10% wound up in churches that we would call theologically liberal. And I mean by that churches that deny the Bible or deny that Jesus is the only way to God. So 80% of the people that leave churches of Christ wind up in Bible-believing, Christ-exalting churches. That's really good news. This is also interesting. 41% wound up in non-denominational churches. 22% wound up in independent Christian churches. So basically, two-thirds of the people that leave go to churches like us. They want to go to independent, autonomous, Bible-preaching, Christ-exalting churches. I think that's the good news. It was kind of interesting, only a third of the responses mentioned the gender issue. And, that's, and again, we're talking Southern California where I thought it would have been higher than that. I, I'm, not, I'm not diminishing that issue. That's an issue that uh, is, I know, very important to some. But this is the point. Most of the people that are leaving our churches aren't leaving over the gender question. They're leaving over the worship question. Um, and then he quotes a line from Tim Woodruff, preacher at the Otter Creek Church of Christ in Nashville, in his book, um, Transforming of a Tradition. Many of us are no longer willing to pour the best of ourselves into the preservation of 19th century modes of worship or doctrinal positions that, in our hearts, we no longer accept or believe to be central. Jesus did not die, nor do we want to live to ensure that buildings do not have kitchens or that music remain congregational in a cappella or that a woman never make announcements in church. Now, to retain our children, if that's important to you, we're going to have to do one of two things. We're going to have to tell them that a cappella music is the only way to please God. And they have to stay in a church that sings only a cappella because if they don't, they displease God. Or, we're going to have to give them the wonderful option of a cappella and instrumental praise. Now, the first approach clearly is not working. I believe the second just might increase their appreciation of a cappella praise. I believe that next generation, when they were allowed the freedom to worship in the many diverse ways scriptures allowed, and they had moments of a cappella worship, would say, wow, that was awesome. That was cool. And I think that's the only way we're going to preserve the appreciation for that awesome way to praise God with this next generation, to let it be a wonderful, beautiful choice. What we cannot do is continue to ask them to hold a tradition we will not open our Bibles to defend. I've heard many people say, Rick, this isn't the time. We just need to wait and let our children solve this problem. Our children are not going to stay to solve the problem. And so let's be leaders and change it for them and change it for the sake of the mission. I believe God raised us up for such a time as this. I believe our church can be a lighthouse to inspire hundreds of churches to revival and relevance. It's not going to be easy. Some will misunderstand. 
some will choose not to even try to understand. We've been there before. We know what that's like. But this is biblical. This is missional. And this is doable. And so I'm going to give the best of myself to seeing this church be the most culturally powerful, missionally effective church we can be for the next generation. The gospel's worth it. Lost are worth it. Our children are worth it. So that's where I'm going to stand. Um, I want to thank you again. You gave up a very important day to be here. Uh, we're going to make the announcement tomorrow. And uh, I wanted you to know first. Um, I'd like to, I mean, I hope that you will support this decision. People are going to ask you what you think. I hope you will at least be able to say, well, you know, Rick's going to do a teaching, and you need to listen with an open mind and make up your own mind. Uh, but I want you most of all to pray, because I do know this. God has clo- cho- spoken clearly about loving brethren, about believing the best about brethren, and about doing all things in love. So be a leader in that way for us. I believe, Mike, you need to ask the adult teachers to meet with you. Okay, and um, I want to close this with a prayer, but then let me just remind you that uh, I'll be out in the commons area. Uh, I'm sure some of the elders will be there too. Uh, we'll stay. I'll stay as long as someone wants to talk to me and uh, be as available as I can be in the days ahead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. It's always rich to be in your word. Father, uh, deliver us from any agenda but being faithful to the commission to take Jesus to the world, to be disciple makers. Thank you, God, that this has always been a place and a church where love reigned. Now, we know the enemy in the days ahead will try to change that. He will try to disrupt the unity of the body. But we pray against that in Jesus' name. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So, Father, do a mighty work here and around the world. We love, we love the church because she belongs to Jesus. We pray for his soon return and that his bride will be ready and radiant. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.